1996, a program came onto the television that began what now is a fascination with people in the UK and we found when we went to the USA as well. The program was called Changing Rooms, where you would watch a room which in someone's house was a complete dump, and then it was changed by the end of the program into an amazing room. It was where uh, Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen and Handy Andy made their names. And now, it seems, that there are home improvement programs on every single day. In fact, there are channels on the television dedicated to home improvements and uh, garden improvements and all those kind of things. And when we were in America, every time we went to someone's house and they had the television on, there was always a program to do with home improvements, changing a room or a house from being in complete disarray into something that is amazing. And the Bible tells us that we are God's workmanship. He's not at the work of changing rooms, but he is in the work of changing hearts and changing lives. There are different ways that God is at work, but all of the ways God is at work will come to completion. So for example, God is at work bringing people into his kingdom through salvation. People going from unbelief to belief, going from being dead in trespasses and sins, you can't get in any more disarray than that, to new life in Christ. God is at work in changing his people more into the image of Christ. There's an ongoing work in all of us. None of us here this evening, myself included, can say we are the finished article. We can all say he's still working on me. God is at work in his secret will, working out everything, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 tells us, uh, to conform everything with the purpose of his will. God is at work in this whilst waiting to do the ultimate home improvement, changing this old fallen world into a new and perfect creation. And the scriptures teach us the wonderful truth that we also are involved in that work with God. We are involved through mission in bringing people into his kingdom. We are involved through obedience, living according to his word, in becoming more like Jesus and helping others do the same. We are involved in the will of God as he uses us in our circumstances for his eternal glory. When I watched Changing Rooms, because my family did used to watch it when I was a teenager at that time, I never used to wish I was on the program and being involved because my DIY skills were as good then as they are now. But I am involved in the work of God. He wants me involved in the work of his kingdom. And it's a wonderful privilege, isn't it, to be involved in that work. And the building of the temple in Ezra is a small picture of the grand work of God in the universe, where he is bringing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship him in the new heavens and earth. And in this chapter, we see with a, a microcosm in Israel, how God does this great work, and he does so through means of grace. Now, when I say means, uh, what I mean 
is how God works, how he works to fulfill his purposes with his people. And it's means of grace because God wants me to be involved in his work, but I don't deserve to be involved in his work. I don't bring any particular um, uh, talents to the work as such, except God gives us what we need to do his work. It's all of grace. None of us deserve to be a part of God's great purposes, but praise God, he has called us so that we are. And Ezra chapter 5 shows us in this task of building the temple how God works in all of the work that he does. How he uses his people in his kingdom work. How he uses us in mission. How he changes us into his image. How he enables us to help others to change. How he helps us in being involved in his secret will, his sovereign will that sometimes we don't understand. But we are in circumstances sometimes that are difficult and we know that he is working through those things. This chapter shows us how God works with us. And the first thing we see in this chapter that we read is that God uses dynamic preaching. God uses dynamic preaching. If you were to look up the word dynamic in the dictionary, you will see the following definition. It is of or concerned with energy or forces that produce motion as opposed to static. So in other words, something is static, but if it's got dynamism, it produces motion. It moves forward. And dynamic is a word used for something that injects energy. And God's word, bought by a spirit-filled preacher, does just that. Why was dynamic preaching needed? What was the problem that the people of God had? Well, because static is a good word to describe the people of God at this time as we come to Ezra chapter 5. If changing rooms was produced around two and a half thousand years ago, the temple in Jerusalem would have been a good place to do a program. As we have seen in the book of Ezra, the people of Israel began uh, to do the DIY, not in a room, but in a house, a house of God, the temple in Jerusalem. And the program would have started really well because they had started wonderfully in chapter 3. We read how they began with great excitement building the foundations of this temple in Jerusalem. They were excited because they'd had this decree from King Cyrus who enabled them to return back to Israel after being in exile for almost 70 years. But the program, if they were making a TV show about this, would never have been finished. Because after great excitement, we saw last week in chapter 4 that the people of God were opposed and attacked. And we left them in chapter 4 verse 24 with these words. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The work which began so well because of opposition came to a standstill for 16 years. So chapter 4 and verse 24 and chapter 5 verse 1 in the middle contain a gap of 16 long years where nothing much happened and the work came to a standstill. 
It appears later on from uh, the uh, letter uh, in verse 16 of chapter 5 that, that some kind of work was going on, but it really wasn't of any significance. It was really at a standstill. Nothing much was happening. In fact, the prophet Haggai, in his prophecy, which we have later on in the Old Testament, he tells us that they were obsessed with home improvement, but it was their own homes. They were building their own houses. They were decorating their own walls and all these kind of things in their own homes, but left God's house a ruin. And nominalism had set in. The people of God were stuck in a rut. The house of God was something that was put off whilst more important things came in. And you see how we can have the same problem. God's people should always be moving forward growing more like Christ, seeing spiritual fruit in our lives. But I wonder if any of you have ever felt your Christian life stuck in a rut. Church becomes optional. Service in the church becomes rare. Bible reading and prayer happen occasionally. And when you do, you go through the motions. The Lord's Supper loses its meaning for you. Sin becomes habitual and and you don't even notice it really. Christ rarely appears in conversation at work, at home, or even among Christian friends. God doesn't appear to be working very much and you've been disappointed and you have no real desire to get to know God more. That's all those things that are, are Christian lives stuck in a rut and I wonder, does that even describe some of you right now? Have you come to church like this, even tonight? Perhaps you don't even have a Christian life to speak of. A Christian is someone who trusts that Jesus Christ has died to pay for their sins and is following him as their king. Does that even describe you at all? If that's the case, you're worse than static. The Bible describes you as spiritually dead. But as we come into Ezra 5, God intervenes with dynamic preaching in verses 1 to 3. In 520 BC, Haggai and Zechariah, whose prophecies we have later on in the Old Testament, prophesied to the people. Now in the Old Testament, a prophet was a person called by God to speak to the people in his name. And the words that they received came directly from God. So the prophecies uh, begin with, the word of the Lord came to, and then they speak the word of God. Today, we don't have prophets in the same way. What God has to say to us is contained in his word. Those who have a gift of prophecy in the New Testament are not infallible like the Bible, And they're not like the Old Testament prophets who have a direct word from God. What they say can be useful, but it must be weighed against the scriptures, against the word of God. But here in Ezra 5, and if you read Haggai and Zechariah in those books, is God's word coming directly to the people through dynamic preaching. And how do we know it was dynamic? Well, look at verse 2. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josedek, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Later on in chapter 6 and verse 14, it says, So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper 
under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Iddo. The preaching was good for them. It was dynamic. When the word was preached, the people went from doing nothing, that it was, the work was at a standstill, from being static, and it moved. they moved. God's word came through his spirit, through his preachers, and they moved. They went and they worked for God. Dynamic preaching. It was preaching with a force, preaching that produced motion in the people. And Paul the Apostle writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 17 in the New Testament, that faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. So God's word is dynamic. When we read it or we hear it, it gives us faith. How does God's word move us forward? Well, for a non-Christian, the gospel is the word of God. And so through the gospel, through God's word, we know how to be saved from God's wrath. We heard that gospel this morning, didn't we? We heard how God saves us through the death of his son. That is contained in God's word. God speaks that to us. And when a person who is not a believer hears that Jesus has died for them and has risen from the dead and gives new life, when the Spirit of God applies that word into their hearts, there is new life. There is force. There is dynamism in their life. They go from being dead in trespasses and sins to a new life in Christ given to them. That's dynamic preaching. That's from the Word of God. And for believers, we must constantly be moving forwards, not being static in our Christian lives, growing. And God's Word is the means God has given us to do that. It is a means of grace. God's commands, God's promises in the Word of God Show us how to follow him in faith. And God's word is God's means of speaking to his people so they know what part they play in his great work. And the dynamism of the word is shown here in how we see the people working for God going from static to working hard. And we'll see uh, that the temple completed rather quickly. People get on with God's work. But notice also how God's word speaks in different ways for different times in different circumstances. Uh, There's two prophets named here, Haggai and Zechariah. Both spoke God's word, both at the same time period, but very differently. Now, we're not going to read those prophecies right now. Uh, I encourage you to do so uh, when you get home. But when you read Haggai's prophecy, you'll notice that it is hard-hitting, it's to the point, and it speaks to the conscience. Haggai Haggai gives people a kick from behind. But Zechariah, on the other hand, prophesies quite differently. He is full of visions. He's future-focused and speaks more to the heart. But both speak in the second year of King Darius, and both were needed. But God's word is amazing in its variety in how it speaks to us right where we need, right in the way that we need to be spoken to. God brings his word as we need to hear it. And all of us sometimes need to hear that word of rebuke. Sometimes we need that kick from God's word. Sometimes we need that embrace. Sometimes we need to see that future vision that God has in store for us. All of God's word speaks to us and God's spirit brings it to us just as we need it when we do. How many of you have experienced 
uh, God's word, just the word you need at the, just the time you need to hear it. But how do we hear God's word? Well, there are two ways of hearing God's word. Firstly, we read it for ourselves. This means we must read it on our own. We must listen to it attentively. We must ask God as we read it to move us. This means we need to meditate on it, pray through it, think through the implications of it. But secondly, we hear it preached, and that's more what we see in this passage. Notice how Haggai and Zechariah worked among the people in verse 2. It says the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. As God's people were working, God's prophets were supporting. And we see here the role of a good pastor, don't we? He supports the work of God through faithful preaching of God's word. I think Tim described our role uh, one time as uh, being here on Sunday almost as a half-time team talk to send everyone out with so they can keep going in God's work. And that's really what was going on here. And so we must listen to good preaching, first of all, from our own church. But in this day and age, there is no excuse for not being able to hear God's word. For there are good resources online, there are good books. You can read uh, lots of good things, listen to lots of good sermons. There's no excuse for saying, I cannot hear God's word through dynamic preaching. First of all, and I'm not just saying this because I work here, but you should listen to your own pastor. But of course, there is so many resources that we can use, and we praise God that we can hear dynamic preaching. So let's read the word ourselves. Let's listen to dynamic preaching. And when we don't hear God's word, we will be stuck in a rut. It's God's means of grace to move us forward. So God used dynamic preaching to move people forward, but there was another means of grace to keep them going. And that second means of grace is divine providence. What is providence? Providence is God's foreseeing protection and care for his creatures and his direction of all things to fulfill his purposes. Let me say that again. Providence is God's foreseeing protection and care for his creatures, and his direction of all things to fulfill his purposes. Because of the providence of God, his complete control of everything, the people of God can move forward confidently in in his work, because they know that he is in control. In this passage, we see divine providence clearly. That's what I asked you to look out for as we read it earlier on. As soon as God's people begin to work, questions start to be asked. Now, I don't believe here in this passage we see hostile neighbors like we did in chapter 4. I think what we're seeing here is good government. The letter in in verse 6 to 17 of this chapter is of a different type to what we read in chapter 4. Chapter 4 was a manipulative letter with malice behind it. But a bit of context shows why this letter here wasn't malicious. At this time, King Darius had not long been on the throne. And there were lots of rebellions that were being put down. The empire was run with provincial governors that would, that would be looking after the area they were in and they would report directly to Darius. And Tatanai was one of those governors. And after 16 years of nothing happening, all of a sudden they start working and we read in verse 8 that they were using large stones. 
and they were using timber. And any good governor would want to know, well, there's been 16 years of nothing happening. What's going on? There's a new king on the throne. There's rebellions everywhere. What are these large stones being used for? Could it be the beginning of rebellion? And also as today, these questions are basically, have you got planning permission? Who is responsible for this? It's not enemies here. This is just good and normal government. And so we read that Tatanai and Shephar Bozanai asked those questions. Where's the planning permission and who is responsible? And although nothing sinister was going on, this could throw the people off guard, couldn't it? What if Darius stops us from building? What if the governor doesn't believe us? What if? What if? But verse 5 tells us the key point in this whole section. But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply could be received. God was watching over the elders, divine providence. They had to wait for a reply from Darius but they could keep going. Knowing God was with them kept them going. In chapter 5, verse 17, the people had to wait for a search to be made for the decree of Cyrus. They weren't to know whether it would be found or not. They weren't to know how well the Persians kept the records uh, back in Babylon or in Susa, where the, the, the king would live. And they also knew that they, didn't, or they, they knew that it could take ages for a reply to be received. They didn't have special delivery. They didn't have emails. This letter would have gone to King Darius, and then King Darius would have had to search for this record. There's no uh, computer database to, to search the record on. It would have taken a long time. So this suspense would have been going on for ages. They had to wait and build while this was hanging over them. But they knew God was with them, and through the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, uh, they, they, they carried on going. In the fact, in the book of Haggai, Haggai, he repeats a phrase often, I am with you, says the Lord Almighty. Haggai's constantly reminding the people that he was with them. And through these circumstances of, and times of worry, they carried on. Now, worry can stop us serving God as we ought to, can't it? We can ask, what if, and not do what God wants? So we, we, we must keep going with what God asks of us even when we're unsure about the future because God knows the future and God has it under control and his eye is always upon us. And chapter 5 verse 6 to chapter 6 verse 11 are the historical record of this correspondence between Tatanai and his friends and King Darius. Now we can't go into detail tonight over it, it, it all but I want you to notice a few important points here that show the amazing fatherly care that God has upon his people. First of all, notice how God put people that were well informed on what God was doing in place as elders of the Jews. In, verses five, in chapter 5, verses 11 to 16, we read this detailed answer that the people gave to the question of planning permission. And the answer was an accurate history of what went on before the decree of Cyrus, so they, they, they disobeyed, they, uh, Solomon built the temple, they disobeyed God, he'd sent Nebuchadnezzar to judge them, and they went into exile. And they had then described what happened with Cyrus and the decree, and what it was. 
And as part of divine providence, God put these gifted people in, in place so that they had the skills needed to answer these questions. And it's a, a great blessing and, and providential blessing of God when he puts people in the church that have the skills we need when we need them. It's a wonderful thing. I was, re- I was uh, a church in Cornwall that we know of. Um, they had to build, uh, build, uh, they, uh, build a building. And at the time that they built the building, at that very uh, moment when they were looking for the planning permission, in walks into the church an architect who knew all about planning and all those kind of things. It was an amazing uh, gift of God. And God does that through divine providence. Also, notice the perseverance of Darius, a non-believer that he had in searching for this record. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, King Darius issued an order, and they searched in the archive stored in the treasury of Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ecbatana, in the province of Media. Now, this is what was happening here. They, 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 they assumed, initially, that this uh, decree would be in Babylon. But it wasn't in Babylon, And the Persian Empire had four capital cities. They had Babylon, they had Susa, they had Perispolis, and they had um, Ecbatana. So they would have searched in Babylon for definite and didn't find it there. And eventually it turned up, of all places, in Ecbatana. It reminds me of one time when I lost my wallet and I was searching around the house for it and eventually, months later, I found it. Uh, on one of the slats under my mattress in the bed. Now, I don't know how it got there, even to this day, but it turns up. And this is what's happening here. This Dar- King Darius, who, who, he's, not a, he's not a Jew, he's not a, a believer. Um, he's being um, polite, perhaps, I think, in calling uh, God the great gods and all those kind of things. But this pagan king is searching and searching and searching for this decree of Cyrus. Now, if it was me, if it was not in Babylon, well, I'll say, well, I can't find it. But he keeps going. That's the providence of God, isn't it? That's God at work in the life of Darius, just like he was working with King Cyrus. And after finding the decree, look at what Darius declares in chapter 6, verses 3 to 5. In verses 3 to 5, the words match the decree that was given in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. The wording is slightly different to that chapter, but the reason is chapter 1 was written to be heralded to all the people, and chapter 6 is the record that was written and stored in Ecbatana. But the main points are the same. They can rebuild the temple. They can bring back the articles, and the cost of doing so would come from the treasury. But then Darius does something amazing in verses 6 to 12. He adds to Cyrus's decree. In verse 6, he says, stay away from there. And in verse 7, repeats, don't interfere. So he's saying, let them build and don't interfere with them. Let them keep going. Keep away. In verse 8, he says, all the expenses are to be paid from the royal treasury. Now, Cyrus's decree said the royal treasury would provide the materials. But here, Darius adds to it, all expenses paid. You can build it however you want. And in fact, the, 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 found, the, the, the size of the building, which we see in chapter 6, verse 3, is bigger even than Solomon's temple was. They didn't build it that big, but they were allowed to. So they could have as, you know, what they needed to do so. Uh, Darius was saying, even more than Cyrus, all expenses paid. And then in verse 9, he even provides the animals needed to sacrifice. In verse 10, he enables the people to, to, to worship God as they 
wish to, according to God's word. He says, you know, exactly as Moses did, you can worship with the animals that Moses, Moses uh, prescribed you to worship with. All of that provided for and decreed, and he even asks for prayer. <laughs> this pagan king, pray for me and my sons. And then, in verse 11, imagine if we were building a building and the council said this, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. They had all the support they needed to build this building. And if anyone was to stop them, impale them. And their house is to be made a pile of rubble. And then in verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 13, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozanai and their associates, it says, carried it out with diligence. That word diligence was used in the description of how God's people were working on the temple in chapter 5, verse 8. Here God is causing the government to work hard. That's what diligence means, isn't it? Hard working. He caused the government to work hard for God's people to build the temple. It's amazing, isn't it, to see the providence of God at work in the empire, not just of the king, but in the governors too, that God made them work with diligence at, the, at, at God's house. And God kept watch over them until we read this summary in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, a descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. One thing to point out here for those that notice, Artaxerxes is mentioned here, and he was not king until after Darius. But as we said last week, this book of Ezra was written after all these events happened. And in the context of history, looking back from the time of writing, Artaxerxes was a king who helped God's people, especially with the walls, as you will see in the book of Nehemiah. But notice in verses 14 and 15 this means of grace that we've talked about. There is the dynamic preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, and there is the divine providence who caused the decree of Cyrus which was also, it says in those verses, the command of the God of Israel. And on March the 12th, 516 BC, the temple was completed. 20 years after it had begun. So from the time of Haggai and Zechariah to preaching, it took four and a half years. So there was 16, 15 and a half to 16 years of standstill. Preaching happens. They get on with the work. Four to four and a half years later, this work is done. There are many verses in the Bible to encourage us that God's eye is upon us as his people. Listen to these from the Psalms. But the eye is of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Psalm 34 and verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. Psalm 139, verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. All uh, the days ordained for me are written in your book before one of them came to be. 
And then in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 29 to 31, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care? And even the very hairs on your head are numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Maybe some of you need that reminder tonight that God's eyes watch over his people. God is watching over us with loving eyes. Sometimes we may not understand what is happening or why it's happening. Sometimes, like God's people here, we're waiting in suspense. But the Bible assures us his eyes are upon us, that he is in control, that he is working all things for his good purposes. Don't forget that we have the benefit of hindsight when we read Ezra. We see the end. We see the completion of the temple. But in that midst of waiting, the people of God kept serving him until the work was done, walking in faith. And as we come to the end of the passage, we see that once the temple is completed, there is worship. And those that can worship God are those who are dedicated people. These are those who, by grace, God uses for his work. Once the temple has been completed, there was a dedication service. The exact same thing happened in the days of King Solomon after he had built the original temple. The difference here was just the scale. The amount of sacrificial animals here are a lot less in the hundreds rather than the thousands, but that was really because of the size of the nation was that much smaller. But notice that this was a celebration for all of God's people, not just Judah and Benjamin, but all of them. In verse 16, we see the phrase, the people of Israel. Then in verse 17, sacrifices were made for all Israel, 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. Now, either this means that some of the northern tribes' people had come back and had separated themselves to worship God, or this may be the people of God looking forward to the future, a future restoration. But either way, the important thing to note is that all of God's people had a sin offering given for them. The house of God was dedicated by them having their sins atoned for. And in order for us to be dedicated to God, we must have our sin atoned for. Now, we don't need bulls, rams, and lambs, but the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And this sacrifice that Jesus made is also for all Israel, all of God's people. And that includes you and I. And we all need it because we all have sinned. No one uh, comes into God's kingdom who is perfect. We all come in as sinners saved by grace through the blood of Jesus. And once we have trusted in the sacrifice that God has made to forgive us our sins, we are dedicated to God and to his service. Verse 18 tells us of the installation of the priests and the Levites into the divisions that God's word had assigned them to be in, in Numbers 18. And we also are dedicated to God for his service, not offering animal sacrifices as the priests and Levites did, but offering up our very lives. And as we do this, God uses us in his work. He uses dynamic preaching. He uses divine providence. But we praise God that in the wonder of his grace, he also uses us as his dedicated people. What about you? Are you dedicated to God? 
Now, in a sense, if you're a Christian, you can say, yes, my sin is forgiven. I'm set aside for God. I'm in his kingdom. But the dictionary definition of, devotion, of dedication is devoted to a cause. Devoted to a cause. Can you still say yes? Can you still say I'm dedicated to Jesus? Is God the one to whom your heart is devoted above all else? Is his cause the one that you give your life for? to give, give your life to? Or does another person's opinion come above that? Or does a career come above that? Or does sensual pleasure come above that? Let's be devoted to Jesus. Now, it may to you sound depressing, as if giving up the things of this world is a bad thing, but notice in verse 16 how they celebrated with joy. They celebrated with joy. Dedication to Jesus, devotion to Christ above all else, is where the greatest and truest joy really is. Jesus uh, said the same thing. After speaking about keeping his commandments in John 15, he says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Full joy is only found in devotion to Jesus. But the devil tells you otherwise. In his account of being the good shepherd, Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, full life, full joy in following Jesus. Lives dedicated to God are full, joyful lives. Not easy lives. We've seen that in Ezra chapter 4 but full and joyful. And as we conclude this section, we see that they ended well for God's people too. In verses 19 to 22, we read of the Passover. Now this was a meal that remembered the time when Israel was in Egypt and the angel of death came to kill the firstborn in every home as a judgment on Pharaoh's rejection of God. And it was the blood of a spotless lamb on the wooden doorframe that saved the people from the angel of death. The Passover feast was established at that time and is still celebrated today by Jewish people. And the Passover in the Old Testament looked forward to the time where Jesus died on the cross and his blood was shed. His blood was placed on the wood so that we could have death pass over us and have eternal life. But here we have a Passover recorded. Now, there are a few Passovers recorded in the Old Testament. All of them are at vitally important times in Israel's history when something is established or restored. So the first Passover was the establishment of it in Exodus. In the Reformation during the time of King Hezekiah and King Josiah, we read the Passover recorded because it was the establishment of true worship. And here again, when the temple is built... They have the feast of Passover because true worship is now established in Israel. And at the end of this section of Ezra, I want you to see the picture that this Passover gives us of something else for us. For they had this Passover when the temple was completed in Jerusalem. And I said this is a microcosm of God's work being completed in history 
Because in the similar way to here, we see how we also, at the end of history, when all things are made new, will also worship God. Notice in verse 20, the Levites were purified and slaughtered the lambs for all the exiles. So everybody was pure. Everybody was pure who was celebrating this Passover. Notice in verse 21, who was celebrating There was those who had returned from exile and those who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. So this was everybody who had separated themselves, not just Jews by birth, but all people who would call God the Lord, that covenant name. Everyone whose God was the Lord celebrated this Passover. They were dedicated people. And in verse 22, notice the joy. They celebrated with joy. It says because God filled them with joy because he had changed the attitude of the king of Assyria to help them work in God's house. And this title, king of Assyria, is important. First of all, it's not an error. Assyria was part of the Persian Empire. And the title of king of Babylon and king of Assyria was passed on to the king of Persia because he'd taken over it. But this title was used also to show the power of God to change hearts because his, and his sovereign control of history. Because Assyria was a nation that struck fear into God's people. Assyria judged God's people, but now the king of Assyria is helping God's people. An amazing turnaround. And this is where this section of Ezra ends. Chapter 7 we'll look at in a month's time, but it's 60 years later. There's a real ending here in the end of chapter 6 of this section. And it ends well, doesn't it? Can you see how this pictures the end for all of God's dedicated people? All are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, celebrating with a feast, praising him for what he has done. It's a holy people from different nations, eating together, seeking the Lord. It's a joyful celebration. Notice that when the foundations were laid in chapter 3, there was joy and weeping. Joy and weeping. But when it's complete, there is only joy. This is a picture of heaven, isn't it? And when we read, uh, we read this, sorry, in Revelation 5 last Sunday morning. Revelation 5, 9 to 10. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests, to serve our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And later on in Revelation we read these words, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. There's a picture of completion here. There's no weeping there. It is only joy for God's dedicated people. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing as we close. Uh, By faith, we see the hand of God. And it's by faith we must walk, and we do so until God's work is finished. So let's stand as we sing God's praise together as his dedicated people.